This week, I talk with the witty and erudite Kevin Wilson and Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint about the importance of pop culture to the military. Now, not to the military like as necessarily a institution or at the upper echelons, but the importance of pop culture to help you join the military or the importance of pop culture to motivate, inspire, entertain you when you're in the military. We talk about shows that you watch when you're deployed and movies and TV that caused you to think about joining the military. We talk about why the Hurt Locker offends the hell out of Charlie and Kevin. This was a fun one. We had a really good time. I'm going to throw out a theory. I think if you don't understand pop culture's role in the military, then you don't really understand the military as a whole because there's a lot of downtime in the military and pop culture pretty much fills all of it. Anyway, this is a fun one. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of The Weekly Havoc, a roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Except, of course, this week, which is almost every week I make a caveat for that opening statement, which probably means that opening statement needs to change. But um, this week, we're doing something a little bit different, and we're going to talk about something that isn't necessarily impacted by anything from the week's events. But anyway, we'll get into that in a second. Kevin Wilson is a 13-year veteran of the North Carolina Army National Guard. He spent time in Syria blowing up ISIS, as well as Kuwait and Egypt. He also works with Right to Bear, which is a group working to bring responsible firearm ownership to communities traditionally neglected by mainstream gun culture. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Welcome back, Kevin. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. No, I'm glad you could be here. Uh, Charlie, of course, is here as well. Charlie Faint. Active duty Army Intelligence Officer, Deputy Director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. Previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments, in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea. Three master's degrees, currently a PhD candidate, Executive Director of the Second Mission Foundation, and owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show and thrilled to be back on with Kevin Wilson. Yeah, well, we missed you last week. <laughs> We, I don't. We, we I, don't I doubt you missed me. We almost had the whole. Murphy. <laughs> I, I I don't think anybody got my joke. I wasn't looking at the cameras last week, but last week when we had Matt Trevathan and Christopher Otero on, uh-huh. both from Mercer, and uh, for our listeners that may have missed that episode, and if they did, they should go back and listen. But uh, I made a joke early on about, hey, we've got uh, th- two of the three families of the Mercer Mafia, and I don't, I didn't see their faces, so I don't know if they got the joke and were laughing or smiling or acknowledging it, or if nobody got the joke. But um, that was one of the things that made me think we should probably do a pop culture episode because I don't know how in-depth with references I can get or not with our guests because um, we haven't really gauged that yet. But anyway, this was the third member of the Mercer Mafia for those listening last week that we missed last week. So, Well, Chris, the first guess- rule of the Mercer Mafia is, you know, you don't talk about the Mercer Mafia. So they were following the rule. Or there is no Mercer Mafia. What is this Mercer Mafia you speak of? Right, it's just it's like the Spec Four Mafia in the unit doesn't exist. We don't talk about it. That's right. And now, if there's a Mercer Mafia, does that mean there's also a Mercer FBI? Ooh, I don't know. Okay, we'll <laughs> jump off that bridge later. Okay, so listen, guys. This week, um, I won't really. 
I don't think there's really a fascinating story as to how I got to this topic. Um, but I'll try to gin up something here. The, the topic for this week was how important is pop culture to the military? And I guess kind of what got me thinking about that, there were a couple of things, but this is kind of a roundabout way of how it got there. There was an article in the New Yorker, I believe, written by a professor who had gotten fascinated with the idea of social media influencers. And he ended up getting a assignment to go into an influencer house in LA where these really young guys, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 guys are living there kind of just being themselves and trying to capture it all and monetize it as influencers. And in my head, what I started thinking of, because he, he goes through the litany of tasks they have to do and what the dropout rate is and the pressures they feel to have so many followers and all that. And I thought, man, a lot of these guys obviously aren't going to make it as he hints in the article. And I thought, boy, who knows how many of them might end up in the military or that one guy that ends up in the military. And he's the guy in basic that they're like, yeah, go check out his Instagram back when he was an influencer five years ago or something. What a jackass he was or whatever, you know, and they just start, uh, and, and that becomes his thing that everywhere he goes, they're like, oh yeah, I remember you like jumped off that building once and landed in a trash can or something, you know, and he'll be that guy. So that's where my brain went. And then I thought, you know, we really should talk about that, about how important pop culture is to the military, especially because pop culture doesn't really get the military, but the military imbibes an awful lot of pop culture in my experience, and I'm sure yours. So I thought we should probably talk about that a little bit. Kevin, globally, just to talk about it uh, before we get into specifics, how important is pop culture to the military? Um. I think the person best suited to that, someone who spent a long time in Syria, Iraq, someplace where there's nothing to do but watch everybody's hard drives one after another. That was our primary form of entertainment in Syria, aside from you know, a couple of guys who you know brought in their Nintendo Switches or whatever. But when you're not on duty, you're usually watching something, you're reading something, and everybody's got their own little clicks of what they like. Some people are watching, you know, watching movies. Like we had a large group that went through justified all the way through Mm. six seasons, I think. Okay. And when you're living in an environment where you make your own entertainment, that's pretty much a lifesaver. It probably kept us from killing each other. Absolutely. I don't doubt it. Charlie, what about you? I mean, it's important, right? Absolutely. And, and along the same lines as Kevin, I mean, if, if it was produced before 2009, I watched it on the movie drive, the task force server. It, I remember binge watching the first couple seasons of the wire. And I remember yep. uh, people would get into it together. It's like, Hey, let's, yeah. let's, uh, let's watch the first season of scrubs or whatever it is, depending on how long you've been out there. And then you, you hear those mannerisms and those little quips and catchphrases carrying over into the job. Yeah. While you're working, someone will, will make a comment about it and everyone will be on, in on the joke. And it's a big team builder, I think. Yeah. How much did you find that you relied on it personally? Like for me, I, I got in a habit of, I, I never really had a lot of time to watch stuff. There might be something like when I was in an office, there might be something in the background, but I, I could not go to sleep without watching a 20 minute sitcom before I went to bed. And I, that was just for me personally, just to kind of tune, check out for a minute. Did you have anything like that? 
Yeah, we did that on the regular. So in the Intel field, there's a lot of sitting around waiting for the ops guys to come back. When they come back, we got something to do. So, you know, we, we help them prep to go out on the mission. We help them get on the X, but all actions on is all them. So while that's going on, it's getting sorted out. There's not a lot we can do, like when they're in the helicopters flying back. So you got that on kind of background noise, and you're somewhat paying attention to it. And for us, there were no days off. Every day was a work day. You might be able to come in an hour late on Sundays, but there was no R&R. There's, no, there's nothing. So that was our relaxation, that going to the chow hall and working out. <clears throat> so, yeah, so every night we would, we would watch an episode of whatever. And then going to bed at night, I normally fell asleep listening to music, which is also, of course, pop culture. I put in my little MP3 player and fell asleep with that. It was not something I did at home, but I also didn't live on a major airfield at home. So those jets come screeching in, and sometimes the uh, the music would help me sleep through some of that. Got you. Yeah. I know there was a month uh, I spent in one country where that country lost internet. Uh, the undersea cable was severed. Um, or there was a storm or something. We don't really know, but we didn't have internet for a month. And I remember, uh, the guys in the compound, I was co-located during that month. I just happened to be co-located with a, a bunch of young guys in an infantry unit. And they were, um, you know, it was 24 hours of panic of, holy crap, what do we do? And then suddenly everybody just started commingling. And instead of rushing back to their corners and like, playing video games or watching something or downloading something. Everybody rediscovered card games and, um, you know, hopscotch or I don't know, you know, stuff like that, but just communal things that they could do, uh, cornhole, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think without pop culture, the military becomes a very different beast. And the closest I ever felt a kinship to like the Vietnam World War II era where it's like, oh, this is why you guys were like developing such communal bonds because – you couldn't just kind of isolate in your own social media. You get where I'm coming from with that, Kevin? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, especially in Syria where there was a very strict bandwidth limit, so there wasn't much coming in. You know, you still had your nightly spades games, which were um, brutal if you didn't know how to play. Um, and we got a, for Christmas that year, we got a bunch of Magic the Gathering decks, like starter decks. Yeah. And the care yeah. packages. I was the only one that brought my own deck beforehand. So it was a very interesting experience. You know, everybody's trying to learn how to play it. I've got this just basically a troll deck designed to crush all hope. I thought it was fun, but I mean, there's still the communal aspect and whatnot to it, but yeah, those times when we were cut off for whatever reason, because, you know, communications blackout or whatever, Right. There's definitely right. a lot more of, well, shit, I can't do my normal thing. So I guess I have to deal with people. What did you think? Did you like that more? Because I kind of got used to it and I kind of resented it when internet went back on. And it was like, we, we had, I remember we were playing Saboteur and, uh, you know, like all these kind of weird games or cards against humanity or whatever. And it was like, and then those games kind of disappeared once we kind of got everything back. But I kind of missed that. Did you? Uh, to an extent. No. <laughs> well, the thing is, after we were in a very, like, we were deployed to Syria as a platoon. There were not that many of us. We kind of got tired of seeing each other after a while. That's fair. Okay. Yeah. 
is this tiny little fire base in the middle of, I can't really say, where there's nothing to do but whatever entertainment you have with you. And people get on your nerves, especially when you're in a high-stress environment. And by the end of it, we didn't want to see each other. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. What about you, Charlie? Well, we played a lot of video games, too, especially Call of Duty. I've written about that before. The 160th Call of Duty was huge. And I'm really good in hearts and spades. I played with my soldiers from the my first platoon leader days on up, and uh, that was always fun for me because I I'm a much better loser, a much more gracious losing than I am winning, and that would just uh, it would amuse me greatly to see people's reaction when I whip the shit out of them in spades and hearts. And then Call of Duty it ultimately got that way too. Although at the beginning it was really bad for the Intel guys. Gotcha. Really. I would have thought they'd out of the time. They'd have well, the time did, to be really was, good, right? We were we were trying to support the <laughs> the pilots, and uh, I didn't even want to play. But they, you know, everything in the one sixty is the competition, pull ups, yeah, juggling, Call of Duty, and we played with them once because you know if they if you turn people down enough, they stop inviting you to do stuff. Yeah. So yeah. we played. They monkey stomped us. And then they ran their mouths about it. So eventually we did. We 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 IPB'd Intel prepped the battlefield of Call of Duty, um, also uh, United United uh, Offensive, and eventually we started winning. So yeah, ultimately the the Intel guys won, but the ops guys stomped us in the beginning. Did you ever have a time though that you got cut off? I mean, outside of like you well, know yeah, training um, scenarios and all that, but I mean, yeah. But when did you what what did you guys end up doing when you well, lost? Every- Every time, every time that someone got killed in the task force, there was, there was an internet blackout. Right. And anytime there was a mishap that someone might've gotten killed, they blacked us out. So that didn't happen daily. Of course it didn't happen, but it happened kind of on the, on the regular, but our movie drive was on the land. So that was a local area network and we were able to do that. But also, you know, a lot of that is just background noise. So if you don't have the movies going, you can put on music or whatever. It's just something to to manage stress is really what we used it for, is all, all that stuff which just helped manage it. So, Charlie, as an officer, as somebody that was in charge of other people, when you ran your shop, did you – I'm taking it you were very permissive about allowing movies – and TV to play in an office environment while everybody's there writing their reports and doing all the yeah. stuff that they got to be doing. Okay. Char- Charlie and I never worked together. I was, th- I was the prick that I could not stand background noise because <laughs> I'm too Gen X and I can't take the ADD ness of movies, especially great movies because it would piss me off. And I remember on one deployment, um, the, the chief that was running our shop put a, uh, put heat on, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, probably my all-time favorite movie. And I was furious. I was like, motherfucker, I've got so much work to do. You cannot put that on because I, I limit myself to only watching it once every five years because it's like a fine glass of champagne for me. Like you can't have it every weekend. You can't have it every day. And the fact that he was desecrating it by putting it on his background <laughs> noise, I'm, I'm still morally offended that that even happened. Um, Kevin, the upside of being combat arms is you didn't have to worry about stupid office stuff like that and people playing movies as background noise, right? Uh, you would actually be surprised. So going back to Syria, we were working, the firebase we were working at was shared with a bunch of SF guys and 
our operation center was like a low budget James mm. Bond set. Yeah. You know, TVs yeah. up on the walls. So if there was nothing going on after the major went to bed, they, you know, put a movie up on there. I'm like, Oh God, do I really want to watch blazing saddles? Yes. Do I really want to watch <laughs> whatever Will Ferrell movie they're putting up? No. <laughs> I, I, I strongly disagree. So let me stip, let me, let me, let me explain why. I do not like Will Ferrell generally. I do not find him that funny. Outside of a couple of Saturday Night Live sketches, I generally, I'm one of the people that just, I don't get his sense of humor, which is why I love it when people put him on in a group setting, because now I can actually completely divorce myself from it. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. It's not going to hurt my feelings that I missed the ending, or I'm not going to get sucked into it, and I can still focus. It really is white noise for me. But yes, if I actually needed any entertainment value from it, I, I do find Will Ferrell very disappointing. The thing with us is being artillery, until there's something to do, there's nothing to do. Yeah. You can do the day's reports and whatnot. I wasn't an officer. That wasn't my job. Um, I still ended up having to write a fair few of them just because basic literacy is not a thing in the Army. <laughs> um, but I worked night shifts, and if there was nothing going on, the ISR is just completely dead silent. You know, yeah. Having the having something going on in the background because I couldn't bring my laptop, I couldn't bring my books, whatever. Yeah. To talk. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I could see that. So let's talk about the other aspect of this then. So pop culture is important. We imbibe it in the military constantly. It's like coffee. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. But before you join the military, how important was pop culture in getting you? to join the military? How much of a role or how little of a role did it play and how much did it influence you to actually join? Charlie. So I remember growing up and I'll date myself with this. Uh, I wanted Red Dawn, the original, not yeah. the silly remake that everyone was afraid to have China as a bad guy. Uh, Red Dawn, Platoon, and, and Aliens were my three motivators. I was going to join the military regardless because that's what my, my dad did, both my grandfathers, et cetera. So I was going to be in the military, but those three movies really inspired me to, to do it. And I remember working in the movie theater in Fayetteville, North Carolina, right outside Fort Bragg in high school and in college, and seeing those movies like Navy SEALs and stuff like that and how... Classic. The, yeah, and, and how that helped motivate people to do, I want to do, I want to do that. I want to see that. So I think pop culture can, for good or for bad, really influence how people see us, Chris. So why did you like Platoon? I can get the other ones because, yeah, you need you need something a little cartoonish and a little muscular to like G up and get you to want to do it. Platoon, though, what did you like about it? What motivated you? So that was kind of the the closest, the most recent war we had at the time. So, you sure. know, I, I graduated from, from high school in 1990. So we had Grenada. We had, I guess, right. Panama by then. And we were about to have Desert Storm. But Vietnam was the closest thing we had to a recent, a recent war. And that's kind of what I expected to have when I joined the military. I didn't sure. expect this fight in the Middle East for 30 years business. So growing up, my dad's books were all about the Vietnam War. He was a Vietnam era 
officer, but he didn't go to Vietnam. So he got commissioned in 71, 72, right, right before I, I was born. So he never went to Vietnam, but he had all the books on his shelf. I'm looking over here at my shelf right now. I got some of his Vietnam books. So that's kind of what I grew up on. It's like, hey, here it is. But you didn't and do it, like Apocalypse Now or anything or, or, or that, Hamburger Hill or any of the other ones, that Korea, whatever. Like there were plenty of other movies that came out of it. Well, these were the ones that came out in the month that my family had free HBO and I was able to record them on our VHS and watch them again and again and again. So I think that's that's why I had those. If Oliver Stone ever listens to this podcast, he would be going white with rage to know that his movie caused you to join the evil, tyrannical, despotic <laughs> U.S. military. But it's probably true. Probably, I mean, it was so famous. I, I'm, I'm sure you're not the only one that got influenced. Kevin, what about you? What influenced you? Uh, I mean, I... Ever since I was little, I've wanted to join. You know, it's, it's sort of skipped a generation of my dad and his siblings because, you know, he grew up in the Vietnam era and that just wasn't a thing you did. But grandpa, all the way back, like we can trace members of our family serving in the Revolutionary War. And it was just, ever since I was little, I was fixated on joining up. But growing up, I was into things like World War II history, uh, my older brother somehow managed to sneak in a copy of Saving Private Ryan, but also Full Metal Jacket. And I don't know why, but I watched that movie so many times, way too young to really know what was going on. But just like the whole thing, is, I know everybody likes to stop Full Metal Jacket after the basic training scenes in because they don't find it funny. But mm -hmm. going, at, I was fascinated by that world. And yeah, I was going to ask you which one you liked, if you liked the first half or the second half better. I mean, you can't argue with Gunnery Sergeant Hartman as a uh, probably the best recruiter the Marine Corps ever had, which yeah. going back. To but it didn't work on you. But it didn't work on you, though, because well, you still went Army. No, because I wasn't an idiot. <laughs> oh, like, so I said later today, folks. Aaron Kirk's The Hill, a story of a Marine and Hellman. I'm just kidding. I won't segue <laughs> to that just yet. But I don't mean that as a, a dig on Marines. I mean that as knowing that <laughs> I was not. I don't know suited. if there's any other way you can take it. Yeah. Well, I mean, sorry, my keep going. Was Marine, so I kind of have to. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I got you. I got no, you. I, I These are inside family jokes. Yeah. yeah. I knew I wasn't going to be uh, suited for it because, you know, I'm not one of those ones that's like, oh, yeah, I punched the drill sergeant. Fuck, no, I wouldn't. I would sit my ass in the corner and cry if I got hit by one, if I got hit by a guy like that. But I, I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to be that hardcore. Plus, they didn't have anything for signing bonuses at the time. Ah, there we go. There we go. Yeah, no, that's fair. What else? What else motivated you? Uh, you said Full Metal Jackal. Did you see another one? Did I miss uh, that? Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan. Was it the first scene or was it the movie as a whole? I love the movie as a whole. Like really, the, the storming Normandy thing, the storming the beaches of Normandy is fantastic. One of the best things ever committed to film, but just the, as I get older, I understand more about why everybody's so bitter. But as a kid, I was just like the way they talked, the way they moved, the camaraderie there. Mm -hmm. And then leading up the battle, you know, for a 14 year old kid who, you know, doesn't really know how bad war is. That was cool as shit. Right. Yeah. What do you think about that now? 
not to get too deep on the philosophy of it, but for, I was thinking of that today. Like today, my kid was playing with his soldiers and, you know, shooting and killing people and all that. And like a lot of young boys, he likes war movies. And he likes seeing that stuff. And I was there. You were there. Charlie was there. Like we, we do, we are motivated by that. And, um, the, the inner, my inner hippie who is not very popular inside my head, let me stipulate. Um, but he does come out sometimes and it was like, Whoa, you know, what's the message here? You know, why do we show these movies and get people into the military when it's these violent images and all that? And the, I'm going to throw out what I think and agree or disagree as you see fit. My sense is, I think it's maleness starting to understand itself. And of core component of maleness is conflict and confrontation. And that those extreme forms of confrontation kind of spur that um, energy and, and the desire for a righteous fight. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to find where those righteous fights can be had and sometimes being disappointed and sometimes being uh, gratified that you had them. That's my take. Charlie, sanity check me. What do you I think, think that's, a, that's a foundational aspect of human nature. And I think if... I think we can look at children and see a lot of this. So Chris, you've got a, you've got a son, I've got two daughters and the way that our children play with, with their friends are foundationally different. And I remember when we had, we had a a trampoline in our backyard where my girls were little. And when it was just little girls out there, they'd bounce and there'd be screaming and stuff like that, having a good time. But, but everybody's out there just kind of working together and you interject a boy or two in the mix and it turns into MMA. I mean, people are coming off flying elbows off the top. And I think that's natural for us as men. We want to compete and there's no bigger competition than combat and warfare. And I think also a lot of us, especially in America in, in different regions and to different degrees have a desire to serve. So if you get to be aggressive and serve something bigger than yourself and get appreciated for it, why wouldn't you join the military if you could? So we're comfortable with military-themed movies or movies that, to use the the phrase from Tipper Gore's day back in the 90s, uh, glorify violence. Because there's, whether it's military-themed or not, if there's a hero doing bloody necessary work, necessary maybe in quotes, um, it's okay because this is just part of the process of the legend, the myths that we build, that we tell ourselves about ourselves that help spur kids in healthy, productive areas. Kev? Well, I, or sorry, Charlie, go ahead. You know, I just wanted to add w- one thing. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, uh, you know, let your kids read stories about bold knights because they're, they'll encounter demons in, in their lives. And I think that I'm butchering that quote. I guess we'll put it in the show notes what it what it actually was. But I think that's important. The conflict, violence, and warfare is an aspect of our lives. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. So I think if if it's portrayed accurately, I mean, I recognize movies are entertainment accurately and positively. Then I absolutely have no problem with it. And one of the things that I show to my own children to help them understand the nature of the world and why their mother and father and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins served in the military was Schindler's list. And I showed, I let them watch it. I was like, uh, my youngest daughter couldn't make it through. She's, you know, Shannon, she's, she's very yeah. sensitive, very sweet girl, but Emily kind of just devoured that movie. And, uh, you know, it was like, Hey, what if those 6 million Jews would have had 6 million guns? 
this is why you don't you jealously guard your rights. You don't let them get taken away. And and Kevin uh, Kevin's Second Amendment project that he's that he's into uh, ties into this also, and that influences me to stay in and, and help prepare the next generation. So you got the combat movies, whether that's space aliens or the Viet Cong or the Cubans or in the remake, you know the the North Koreans. Uh, it motivated me to join, but after I, I gained some maturity in it, Schindler's List is kind of what sustained me. Can, did you ever see Schindler's List, Kevin? I have. and uh, I have never seen it. I've never had a Friday night where I was like, I really want to watch the Holocaust tonight. Like, I just, I never, I never had that moment. I was like, I, I, I got it. Like, you don't have to sell me. I, I'm there. Um, and that's probably to my detriment. But anyway, so yeah, to your point, Charlie, yeah, I could, I could see the value of, um, Showing that, I can also see that after seeing Schindler's List, you really want a military theme movie because you're like, yeah, you do want something muscular punching back against evil, and to actually see that after seeing the horrors of what happens if you don't. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Um, Kevin, you had something. I think I cut you off. All right. So going back a little bit, I forget where I read it, but there's a fairly compelling theory that warfare evolved as with humanity as a means to basically take the pent up energies of young males and get them out in maybe not a constructive manner, but in a controlled manner. So, you know, your early warfares were basically, you have guys with spears and rocks and clubs going to raid each other. And then it evolved into the Greek phalanx, stuff like that, but it wasn't until really much later that it evolved into this giant do or all or nothing. You're either going to win or your people are going to be enslaved. Women are going to be murdered, whatever. So it sticks. Wait, you're saying that that evolved later after the Greeks and Romans? Well, I'd say it involved with the Greeks I would say even before that, though, look at all the little civilizations back in the Bible that no longer exist. Well, a lot, like, of those, wow, a lot of those you know. coexisted with the Greeks. But That's true. That's true. I mean, you have to think yeah. about the Bible's timeline. It really doesn't go all that far back. But a lot no, of times, yeah, yeah. But going back to the Greeks, their warfare was highly ritualized. You know, when these uh, formations from different cities would clash, they would expect some to die. But for the most part, it was almost a ceremonial thing. You have your men going out there and earning their glory on the battlefield. And it's not later until you see, you know, like it becoming this horrible, horrible thing. And obviously this is I mean, back at the beginning. Yeah, I know what you, I mean, you certainly, yeah, I, I take your point. I mean, like Gettysburg, right? Like the women and children would go out to the hill and they'd have a picnic and they'd sit and watch the fat, the fighting. That was Gettysburg. But they're out there and it was like that was something you did, that the weapons weren't going to reach you. And as long as you were at a safe distance, you're going out and you're surveying the scene. And, and yeah, no, there's a certain ritual involved. Yeah, that that sort of notion got disabused fairly quickly, especially as the Civil War turned really nasty. But, you know, even in Europe up until like the early 1900s when accurate rifles became a thing. Yeah. You know, it was still considered somewhat sporting. Like uh, yeah. one of the yeah. one of the big aggravating factors of World War One was uh, the Franco-Prussian War, where uh, France lost Alsace-Lorraine, uh, a territory that had usually been, that they historically considered theirs 
Germany took it over in the 1870s something. I'd have to look up the exact Well, there were three. Date. There were three. There were three Franco-Prussian wars. And yeah, very, very important to understand World War I to talk about the Franco-Prussian wars. Absolutely. Right. But when World War I first broke out, they weren't thinking it was going to be, you know, trenches and gas and tanks. They thought it was going to be this glorious brief struggle, a chance for the young men to go out and earn glory yeah. for themselves yeah. and for their nation. That was a huge part of not only the human experience, but society's thinking up until the horrors of World War One. And it's only after that that we really, like, as a modern society, started to realize, hey, this is bad. Maybe we shouldn't glorify this. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Um, it's an interesting hypothesis. Charlie, what, what were your thoughts? So it's definitely interesting how industrialized it became. And, and yeah, I was thinking when Kevin was talking about some of the, the African tribes that had this very ritualized warfare. And then I remember watching Zulu Dawn again as a, as a kid and seeing how they revolutionized it to something that a lot of people were just kind of playing at war. And Shaka Zulu came in and, and just started murdering everybody because he, he got real serious about it. And I think, I think also... Some of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking a few minutes ago, Chris, about Saving Private Ryan and about the, the industrial scale of warfare is how insulated the American people have become from that type of thing. Almost no one in America goes into the military. Almost no one in America knows anyone in the military. And our casualties are so low. I mean, I think there's yeah. several years in Iraq and Afghanistan where we're losing more, more soldiers to disease and non-battle injuries to, the, to yeah. the military. And when we fight China, which will happen, people aren't ready for the scale of casualties in combat and how they're gonna be, their lives are going to be affected by it back here on the mainland. I don't think we're ready. When are we fighting China, Charlie? Uh, I don't know, man. They're, they're, Give me they a think, date. They, oh, let's they make think, a call. They think they're going to be ready by 2049. Yeah, they, they, yeah, that's right. And that, that's what they're telling the world. We're going to be in charge in 2049, and whether we, we do that by soft power, which they're doing pretty well in right now, or by hard power, which they're trying to do better, they want to they wanna be the preeminent world power by 2049. So if you made me pick a date, that's it. Yeah. And of course, our listeners now are going, you dirty SOB. You waited 34 minutes and you couldn't stay away from China. You just did a week on China last week and you keep circling back to it. All right, we'll get off China for the time being. Um, I'm hearing those voices in my head telling me to move back to the more fun stuff. So ritualized warfare. So obviously, so pop culture has this big influence on whether or not, I'm going to throw this out there, whether or not we believe something is worth fighting for. So, for example, if if you're like getting on Hulu, like I did the other day to watch Shark Tank deployment show, by the way, um, which I we used to watch routinely there, um, there was nothing but you know this show for pride and this show for the pride and this show for the pride, and leaving aside the the merits or lack thereof of that, um, these vehicles of entertainment steer us towards what they believe are worthwhile fights or worthwhile celebrations for us to be imbibing in our entertainment. Uh, it's even in its most passive state, Hollywood can't really stay away from violent content because violence does sell. And there is something endemic to the human condition that we need something to push back against. We need that righteous struggle. The difference that I see is what we choose 
to identify as a worthwhile violent struggle. And I always, my point on this, not to pick, as I pick a lot on modern culture, but to, one of my favorite points on this is actually James Bond movies. You could, they never went against the Russians. It was the Cold War, but they always were very careful. Oh, it's Spectre. Oh, we thought it was the Russians, but it wasn't really the Russians. It's Spectre. It's this whole, or it's this evil businessman. He's the one actually doing all of it. The Russians are with us against them, and we're all kind of working on the same, uh, you know, on the same side of the ledger. And I always thought that was interesting that they had a really hard time just calling out an enemy and saying, yeah, this is actually who you should be fighting. And I never, I'm never sure if I, I love the James Bond movies, but I never, I, I'm not, I'm never sure how I really felt about that. I was like, it all worked out in the end, but it always seemed a little cowardly to me. Anybody else ever had that feeling about them? I don't know if you really- I'll be honest. I, I never, I never noticed. Kev, did you? If you really- I'm going to go Google it right now. <laughs> If you really, I think there was one where there was a Russian agent involved, but she turned out to be on mm-hmm. the side later. But when you really think about it, James Bond is very anti-capitalist because most of the bad guys are rich businessmen who want to be super. Yes, or whatever. Yes, very true. Very true. Yeah, Elon Musk would be a, a Bond villain, you know, and I think he's probably even been referred to as a Bond villain he's because you hit that certain either. level of wealth. I couldn't see him sitting behind a camera. But he has a black suit. suit. No, he has a need, black suit. You need that's the all white you need. Suit. We're going back to blow. Oh, you need the white suit. That's right. You can. do need the white suit. It, he just couldn't pull it off. What about Jonathan Price in that Pierce Brosnan James Bond one when he was like Rupert Murdoch or somebody and he was did he was kind of like that though? Uh, he, he was, was he looked like looked more like Steve Jobs acting like Rupert Murdoch. But Yes. <clears throat> well well phrased. Yes. I agree. Do you do you I ever mean, see that one, Charlie? Or did you turn out during the tune out during the Pierce Brosnan years? Did it make? <laughs> you know, how, I, I like how how, how how much were you shamed to be an intelligence officer when Pierce Brosnan was James Bond and you had no role models to look up to? <sighs> so I mean, we I, I I had to wait until Archer came on this this stream many years later make up for it. Archer's Archer's the hero of the intel community. Archer Archer is the hero of the community, but he's also the, he's less than the sum total. The, the parts are greater than the sum total with Archer. If you ever try to try to binge watch Archer, it's really just the catchphrases that you want. But the content at a, a certain point, you're like, what am I watching? What kind of yeah, debauchery, I, like cra- cra- <laughs> fast road to crazy train did, did I get on with this? After the third season, Archer just goes straight down, shit, down the shitter. Yeah, yeah. But the catchphrases are brilliant. And if I do need to pick me up, I will do you know an Archer uh, phrasing boom you know, uh, thing on YouTube and just watch all of his phrasing boom moments in, in one, you know, cut. I do. Yeah. I do like that. It's gotta be phrasing, but any secret agent that uses an MP40, you gotta love him. That is true. That is true. Yeah. In small doses, he goes a long way. There's no two ways about it. great background noise. Archer's great background noise. It's good brain candy. And then you can tune in, tune out when they get into whatever, well, no, it seemed like everything chapel. ended up being gay and coke filled at some point in every episode. I don't yeah, know where that came from. And you have to explain it. <laughs> Funny story, true story. I, I really believe on one of my deployments, our, our commanding officer lost a ton of respect for me because he moved his office closer to ours and his office door was open and our office door was open. And he started to actually hear a lot of the comments I made to people. And and I noticed the, our, our our work related conversations between he and I became a, a, a lot a lot tenser. I think because I would rip into people on something very very 
pointless, like pop culture or something. And I would I would try to dream up polysyllabic ways of of showing different people how little I thought of their cultural sophistication. And 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 I was just and it was kind of something I did to amuse myself when I was trying to when I was brain freezing or typing out a report or something like that. Anyway, um, I, I think I actually, I think he did lose a lot of respect for me. So that was even worse than the chaplain walking in was uh, my, my, my strong feelings on my pop culture preferences. Well, then again, you'd have to have respect for him in the first place for that to matter. Out. That is true. I, I did respect him though. I will say that he was actually a pretty good guy, but yes, sadly, uh, actually I had a good, I had a good run. I, I didn't have an Oh five, like, like a young Charlie faint, but I did have uh, I did have some good Oh fives that I worked for. That was, I was, <laughs> Happy to have, but I wasn't in artillery also. So artillery, that might be a different breed of animal that becomes an O5 in artillery. I'm going to throw that out there and let you assess that. Uh, yeah, well, most of the O2s, O1s, O2s, and O3s that came through my area, at some point were threatened for, with physically bodily, physical bodily harm for messing with my stuff. I didn't let anyone mess with my truck but my guys. And if... So... High Mars artillery in particular, but, you know, getting High Mars to work in MLRS, it's very finicky. It requires a great deal of janky-ass parts to work together in complete harmony, and they don't like to. When it gets ready, no one touches it. And if they do touch it, they're liable to get a size 15 boot to the chest, knocking them out of the back of the truck. So, uh... This seems like a long rationalization of violence towards officers. <laughs> That's what it seems like. Oh, I don't have to rationalize that. I just have to <laughs> All right. So let me shift the, the pop culture focus to when you were in. So we talked, obviously, about shows we're watching on deployments and what have you. When you needed a pick-me-up, when you needed to regain your sense of purpose, when you were at a low ebb emotionally, who, what's your touchstone? Who did you turn to? Who was it like, ah, that's right. That's why I do what I do. Oh yeah. Now I remember why I signed up and did that yet another six year contract. Oh, that's, this is why I'm doing it all. Who were your go-tos? Kev, go ahead. So I had a hard time relating to a lot of Western media in that respect, because just doesn't really get the military experience. There are exceptions. Generation kill is a fantastic representation mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. you know, what it was like, loved that show to bits, but I ended up actually turning to a lot of anime because they cover subjects like war, loss, post-traumatic stress, that sort of thing, and in a surprisingly nuanced manner too. So I could really surprising for a pacifist nation that hasn't been at war since the 1940s. That's true. Uh, you would be amazed. There's a fairly strong no. right wing right wing sentiment yeah. in a lot of parts of Japan, and a lot of that gets expressed through these shows that touch on war so it, it can i just say i know i know we're a family-friendly show but i do think there's actually a, an important subject there about the repression in both germany and japan that is manifested through violent cinema and tv and pornography and there's oh, something yeah. about it where it's like yeah there i mean we tamped it down and we rewrote constitutions and marshall plan yay and and i'm all in favor of that but man there's some dark shit that is just subsumed there and if not to make this a China episode, but if we do unleash Japan to even out things against China, it is worth considering the dark shit that would come to the to the surface. It's all fun and games out. until the tentacles come out. That's right. That's absolutely right. Anyway, I'm sorry, man. I cut you off about about anime. Make your pitch on anime since I'm anime illiterate. All right. So 
the, the medium of animation in general in the West is considered a kid's thing. Or you have shows like Archer, Family Guy, The Simpsons that are aimed at adults, but are, for lack of a better word, dumb. You know, they're not trying to be highbrow. They're trying to be a way to make you laugh, make you forget. It's escapism. That's not necessarily how it's seen over there. Or at least that's not how it uh, functions when it's made. So you can uh, cover, you know, you still have a lot of stupid shit. But, you know, then you can cover stuff like there's a show called Violet Evergarden that follows a uh, woman who served in war, was deeply traumatized by the experience and essentially has to come home and learn how to be human. And I think that's something that a lot of soldiers and uh, Marines, sailors, airmen, servicemen in general who went to Iraq and Afghanistan can relate to. And a lot of them who watch this just end up breaking down because it feels like something, someone understands what they were going through. Like if there is, it's available on Netflix. If there was one I say what or to recommend watch, that would be it. Interesting. Jesus, I just asked for entertainment picks. I didn't know we were getting like a therapeutic value out of it. But no, that's yeah. I mean, I can see the value in that. Sure, Charlie. What about you? Who are your touchstones? Who do you go to? So when when I needed a little pick me up, I always tried to turn to humor, to to the go on the movie drive and look for humor. I I like music. I like to play music. I always brought a guitar with me on deployment. And I'd have it, uh, I put two screws in the plywood behind my desk and I had my backpacker guitar up there. And if I wasn't in the office, anybody could come in and play my guitar. I'd come in in the morning and someone would be sitting behind my desk playing my guitar and they're getting the same thing out of it I was. So if I ever needed to really to think about why I was doing what I was doing after I joined, I would go into the, the task force headquarters building, the plywood palace, and we had a, a bunch of pictures on the wall. And this goes to pop culture as well. One of them was the falling man in uh, on 9-11, a man falling out of the tower. And there was no caption, there was no context, it was just that picture. And that was a reminder of why we were there in Afghanistan. And then 90 degrees to it on the on the little wall in the, in the hallway there was another picture of a, a young guy, most likely a ranger, who was re-enlisting, uh, he, had, he was in a hospital bed, his chest was all bandaged, he was re-enlisting, two young guys were holding the flag behind him, and that's who I was doing this with. So they got the one picture of, hey, this is this is why we're here, and this other picture, this is who I'm, I'm doing it with. So that always motivated me, it's like, why am I doing this? Why, why am I on my seventh deployment? Why am I you know, here for months and months? Why aren't we winning? Why aren't we be allowed to win? That's what did it for me. But when I needed a... a to get away some escape. Can I, can, I just, can I just say you go guys ahead. are bumming me the hell out? You guys are, are making me go, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, I was like, I was all ready for with my Steven Seagal references and like, oh yeah, that's where I go for, for inspiration. You guys are coming back with like legit serious stuff. Um, you're either better human beings than me or you have much worse entertainment taste than I do. I don't know which one it is, but either yeah, way, well, um, man, you guys are going right for the, for the gut. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, no, okay, sorry, Charlie, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, that that was it. That's that's why we're doing it. But I, I also think, Chris, you and Kevin and I should talk about the bad portrayals of us in the pop culture. Yeah, I'm thinking of two right off the bat. The one Beautiful. everyone loves to hate for all the best reasons: Hurt Locker. What a stupid, worthless does, movie. Does everybody hate that? I hate that movie. I'll be glad to explain why. But I think I think most vets do. And also, there's a series that I tried to like called Tour of Duty. 
Like, what is this crap? It was just kind of most most of Hollywood shows over exaggerate the worst aspects of our profession and apply them to everybody in ways that aren't helpful. So, first off, we'll, uh, I have to declare an interest here. Um, my cousin was in Hurt Locker in a fairly substantial role, um, and uh, that was my. So that's why I, I actually got to go see a sneak preview. Uh, at the time and uh, when it first came out. Um, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. I mean, outside of I haven't seen a lot of EOD guys grab a piece and go solo through a rack doing their own thing and kicking indoors just by themselves. But outside of that, I mean, I enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, it was, I, I thought it brought, you know, for on a dramatic or sociopolitical level, I thought it brought home some realities of war to a public that doesn't get them. It, you know, there's some cartoonish elements to it, but. I don't know. What was your beef with it? The many things. Okay. So the fact that that uh, he was he was a ranger. He had a he had a combat scroll. Right. But everything he did was for himself. He would have gotten his entire team killed. Yeah. Very selfish. Yeah. Very careless. Yeah. Um, I, I I'm also deeply disappointed we didn't we didn't see more of Evangeline Lilly, who's one of my favorite actresses and is a beautiful human being. I think she was his wife there at the very end. Yeah. You're looking at me like that because you, you can't recall it. Yeah, I, I totally don't even remember her in it. Yeah, that's so right. another another thing I used to binge watch on with my wife Lost, and she was she was in that. But also as an intelligence officer, this guy is defusing all these bombs and keeping the parts to them that we could use and we did use in the task force to track down the people who are making the bombs, so you don't have so many bombs out there. So it was just a ridiculous movie. Guy going off on his own, kicking indoors with his team. He would have gotten everybody killed, and and if he'd have done that, if that had been Kevin's leader. Kevin probably would have uh, sorted that guy out when he got back. Because it's just would have a terrible portrayal of how special operations. I, I realize he wasn't a ranger in the movie, but he had been in a ranger regiment, according to his his right. accoutrement. Right. And I just thought it was a very poor portrayal of how we actually do things downrange. Or it was an amazing portrayal of an NCO taking matters into his own hands and keeping his officers from having to make those tough decisions <laughs> and just solving shit himself. Hey, yeah, Kevin, no, no, I, I, I take your point. Kevin, you're an NCO. What did, what did you think about it? Uh, I would rather jerk off fistfuls of cactus or fistfuls of glass and cactus <laughs> mittens than work with someone like that. You know, we like to I'm watching a movie, but you didn't like it as a movie. I'm not saying I'd like work it. with the guy. I'd be scared shitless working with a guy like that, but it was a fun movie. One of the things that really pissed me off about the movie is the way it portrays this guy as, you know, being this adrenaline junkie who's going to war because he doesn't know any other thing and making that seem like it's normal. Like anyone yeah, who's, sure. yeah, anyone, I think that's one of the biggest beefs with this. Anyone who's been in this sort of thing knows you can't do that that's not what people do and it's just the way hollywood tries to uh, portray soldiers in general is infuriating so i have a much less um well-known example um but i remember it was i was actually i think a basic no ait i was at ait when it came out and it, i saw um I was waiting to get my blood drawn or something. So I was like running from, from the barracks o- over to uh, where the thing was. Anyway, they're up on the screen. There was, uh, they're playing uh, Met of honor, the Cuba Gooding, Robert De Niro 
movie about the Navy diver or something like that. So I saw like 15 minutes of it while I was waiting for my appointment. And all I remember going is, you know, I haven't seen a lot of TV or film lately, but this dialogue is, sounds nothing like what, how anybody talks in the military. And there's a, the inability to understand rank. So there's a game in improv comedy that, um, that you play where everyone in a room will take a deck of cards and put a card on their head that faces everybody else. So everybody else knows what card you have except you. And then you do scenes and interact with each other with whoever has the highest card being the highest ranking person there and the, the highest status. And then it descends from there. And you figure out what your status is based off how everybody else is treating you. And that's something that was distinctly missing, I find, in most military movies, is people have no idea the nuances of relationships between ranks and how somebody can way outrank you, but you still can be close to them if you're in a certain kind of unit or in a certain kind of situation, or if you're in a different kind of place, it's entirely different. And it, and, and those are real nuances that I think a lot of people miss. And anyway, Men of Honor is my pick because that one drove me nuts where I was just sitting there going, how the hell, how badly does De Niro need to make those alimony payments? Because you should never have been in this. Anyway, did you guys see that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you ever see that movie? I think it came on TV one Saturday, so it's naturally horribly butchered for broadcast. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if they could have done much worse. Did you ever see that, Charlie? I did, but the the Navy's kind of a, a weird beast. That was a Navy show, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, but so there were general military tenets, though. I think there were being like just the natural military behavior that would have applied across the board that I'd still found lacking. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one that I thought they kind of got right that I actually encouraged my daughter to watch with me, which was Fury, the World War II tank yeah, movie with Brad really Pitt. Like, I know you've said that. To I, me I love I it. Yeah, we talked about it when we were at yeah. your house for dinner. So my daughter wants to join the army. You know that, and she's thinking about being a tanker. And I said, okay, tanks are great. Everything on the battlefield is going to be shooting at you, which is bad, but everything's shooting at you because they're terrified of you. And I said, you got to watch Fury, um, not so much for tank warfare, although I thought that was very interesting, but that's just the way Joe is inside. Their banter, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was accurate. I thought the way that they harass each other and the tank um, and things that you would say that would probably get you shot on the street said something everyone thinks is funny when it's it's together. So I think they really got that part right. Yep. I did not see it. That was on the background repeatedly. I think, as I told you before, that um, in my last shop, and I, I kept leaving the room for various reasons. I never actually saw it. Um, but I'll take your word for it. Kevin, did you ever see it? Did you ever see Fury? Oh, yeah. So from an historical perspective with in terms of tactics and whatnot, it, there's a, it gets a lot more wrong than it does right, but it does very good. It's not accurate, but it's authentic. Also, regarding the whole tank thing, remind me later, I've got some resources your daughter might find interesting. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Yep. So but, uh, can, can we all agree, though, that the most realistic military theme movie ever, undoubtedly, was Michael Biehn and Charlie Sheen in Navy SEALs, right? I mean, <laughs> we, we are all on the same page. Because no. I, I'm not even a SEAL, but I still will routinely break into rooms and grab people that I don't know and say, I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm here to get you out. I routinely <laughs> do that anyway. It's, it, 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 it motivates me. It brings tears to my eyes. It is realistic and it is motivating all at the same time. No, no, no. Chris, you, you got that one wrong. The most accurate military movie ever made was In the Army Now with Polly Shore. 
Did you ever ever see that movie? I remember the previews. I never saw it. I I never saw it. We had that on, and uh, I was in the 101st, and we were going down to to JRTC, Joint Readiness Training Center, down in Fort Polk. And the bus had a VHS on it, and they played that movie. I loathe Polly Shore. This was back when MTV actually showed music videos, and I just thought he was a complete idiot. Man is a fantastic actor. It was a great script. It's a comedy, but I was like, this is actually highly accurate. The way that he, really? as a, a, yeah. lower, I was like, I, I love this movie, 100% really? accurate. Oh, yeah. So funny story, true story. Uh, when I first arrived in L.A., uh, I, literally the same day that I arrived, I went out to the beach because that's what you do. And I was I sat down on a bench and Pauly Shore was out there with some guy filming him for some pseudo documentary trailer type thing. And he ends up sitting on the bench next to me and like BSing with me for like five minutes in between takes and then got up. And that's when I realized like in L.A., just about everybody you run into is famous in to one degree or another. And it's just, you, you literally can't throw a rock without hitting somebody that's semi famous. And if I'd ever seen in the army now, I could have, you know, discussed it with him coherently, but I hadn't seen it. And I generally had no opinions about it. So there you go. Anyway, that's my brief Pauly Shore reference. Um, Kevin movie that you thought nails it as well, or anything else that we talked about. Uh, I already mentioned Saving Private Ryan. That does a fantastic job. Uh, I'm also a big fan of both uh, Band of Brothers and The Pacific. Both of those in terms of... Band of Brothers has some fairly egregious accuracies, especially with the whole uh, Private Blythe thing. Like The show said he died in 48, but he actually went on to become like a Sergeant Major or some shit in Korea. Okay. But uh, once again, we have... Accuracy versus authenticity. Um, you can miss the details, but still get the whole thing right. And another one that did a surprisingly good job of that was Midway. You wouldn't think a Roland Emmerich film would be historically accurate, huh. but like 90% of the dialogue, maybe not 90%, but a high percentage of the dialogue is pulled from records of stuff that actually happened. So When did, when did that come out? 2019, 18, something like that. It's a oh, recent really? movie. Okay, all right. I'm like, yeah, the, the first movie, when you said that, I was thinking of Battleship. I was like, oh, what? <laughs> huh? um, which also, shockingly realistic. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, well, I mean, okay, yeah, I, didn't, I totally missed Midway. <laughs> um, okay, Charlie, I'm yeah, going to, there's no shortage of topics because of intelligence. Kevin, I think the market is wide open for artillery movies. There have been not a lot of those, but. For intelligence work, you have to have, Charlie, a movie that you – I don't want to say model yourself out because that's way too specific and way too strong a, a characterization. But a movie that meant something to you, you're like, yeah, I kind of I, – I, you know, I like this. Not saying you do this kind of work or anything like that, but just you're like, there's so many movies about spies and intelligence gathering and all that going all the way back to the start of movies. Everybody loves a good spy movie. So you have to have had a favorite one, no? So I I like Zero Dark Thirty, although Intel isn't always portrayed well in that. I, I think that that it's it's got some interesting things going with it. I also like some of the the things going on in Homeland, the series, because mm-hmm. um, it mentions JSOC and stuff like that, which always makes me happy. Um, so I think Homeland and Zero Dark Thirty, I, I like those. And 
I uh, I always get a kick out of watching Intel movies because Chris, you know this too. It's always either an Intel failure or operational success. No matter how many times the Intel guys say, "Hey, maybe you need to watch out for this," you can think all the way back to Pearl Harbor. Hey, we got all these planes coming in. Intel detected it. Now, now it's all good. And then when uh, Midway, which was definitely an intelligent success, Ops got all the credit for it. Okay, fine. I mean, they're the ones that have to do the fighting, but let's not forget that that Intel did okay on that one too. Uh, that was my beef with, um, and not that the movie could have changed this, but that was my beef usually with whoever I'm sitting next to while watching uh, the Benghazi movie, 13 Hours. Is is you know they make uh, Chief of Station look like an asshole, which he probably was. Um, but I always am quick to remind people: source operations save the day. Because him getting all of his collectors on the phone and saying, talk to all your sources and get us people that can come rescue us is what got everybody out of there. And uh, I think that's an underappreciated fact of that movie, speaking about intelligent successes. Absolutely. Uh, Zero Dark Thirty, what was your favorite part of it? What part do you, what part did G's you up the most? So I thought it was very interesting at the very beginning when they bring the source in and he ends up blowing everybody up. And it just goes back to how difficult human intelligence is and how important sticking to the, the plan and security processes are. Like, hey, I, I know you, you trust this guy. You think you're bros, but he might actually blow you up. So so can, it, can I just say for the record, and, and it's not a matter of opinion, but factually, that's just incorrect. The, the coolest part of Zero Dark Thirty for anyone in the intelligence field is the fact that the guy has a beard and is wearing like a Rolling Stones shirt or something while interrogating and torturing somebody. That's what you need to be modeling your career after if you're a 35 series in the Army or whatever the other services have for theirs. That's the that's the right answer to anyone listening. Um, but yes, no, I, I I got you, and you, and obviously, like the officer you are, you're thinking actually sensibly and strategically about it, <laughs> as opposed to just thinking about the cool guy accoutrement that you can wear and what you the look you need to be going well, for. It's funny, I, I never did that, Chris. I was always the I was always the clean guy. I always wore a uniform. When we went down to Baghdad or or Balad or or wherever we were, you know, I, I wore we didn't wear patches, but I wore whatever conventional unit patch was down there because I was trying to blend in. Versus people who say they're trying to blend in with two hundred dollar Oakleys, being a white guy in a beard and uh, civilian clothes. So Eric Banna in Black Hawk Down. Yes, be a white guy in Bakara Market with a bicycle and Oakleys. And still gather the intelligence you need and then run out and get on the chopper and fly away, gathering flawless intelligence. Absolutely true. A yeah, white super, guy does super, not stand out in Mogadishu at all. Super fit white guy with a $700 uh, optic on your $1,200 gun and, and a beard. And yeah, it's like, no. What's and, the downside? Yeah, I know. Can I, can I, can I tell you, uh, as somebody that, that did time in East Africa – um, it was so disappointing to me that I could not grow a beard in East Africa. Not not because anybody told me not to, but just because you're like, there's no point. I, I'm not fitting in with anybody by, right. by growing the beard. Like there's re- literally no reason. It's it was such a buzzkill. It, it just hurt my feelings so much. And and to watch Black Hawk Down and see the possibilities of what the aesthetic should have been. Aesthetic is a big part of intelligence gathering. How you look really matters. I think, Kevin, did you have the same thing? Or, or, or because you guys were artillery, were you guys like, hey, asshole, get in your camis and just do the job and stop worrying about how you look? 
Well, I mean, back in the real world, we had to be in uniform and whatnot. But yeah, in Syria, I went to work in a hoodie. Like we shaved once yeah. a week because beautiful. We quote unquote, there's a water shortage. When it actually it was our platoon leaders like you're hanging out with SF. I'm not going to make you shave every day. Those assholes are all rocking beards. There we go. That's the right answer. Absolutely. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why you become enlisted and not become an officer where you have to <laughs> shave and wear a uniform and do things uh, the right way. Um, okay. Last question on this particular thing, because otherwise I'll, I'll skew it too in, into intelligence work. Charlie, did you ever see the conversation with Gene Hackman? No, I don't think I did. Okay. Great one to see. Um Anyway, okay, that kills the conversation if you haven't seen it, but uh, I'll put it out there as a plug. Kevin, did you ever see it? Did you ever see the conversation? Can't say I did. Francis Ford Coppola directed it in uh, in between Godfathers. So in between Godfather 1 and Godfather 2, he shot this small film with Gene Hackman and uh, the actor that played Fredo in the Godfather movies, uh, whose name I'm blanking on for no good reason right now. Anyway, they, they were in that phenomenal movie. Phenomenal movie. I don't care what your military job is. It's a great movie, but um, especially if you're in the intelligence field. Okay. Have we beaten up movies enough? I think we have. We're an hour plus, so we probably should wrap this up. Um, Any last words, any last plugs for entertainment options for those that might be listening overseas, for people that are thinking of joining and need that extra dose of inspiration and motivation? Any last... uh, Shouts out to them of, or suggestions of things that they should be. Watching. Yeah, I I got one. I think I think anyone who's thinking about joining should watch The Outpost. So that's a, a modern movie yeah. about about cop Keating and officers leading from the front. From well, I won't I won't give any spoilers, but I thought it was a good representation of NCO leadership, of self sacrifice, of officer leadership. Uh, there was a friend of mine, uh, Stony Portis taught here at West Point last time I was here is one of the people portrayed in there's got a very small role in the movie, but a very big role in the actual battle got decorated for valor for it. I think that is a, a good movie for you got tactical lessons. You got leadership lessons. You got brotherhood lessons. I thought that was a good flick, Chris, Kevin, did you see it? Do you, what'd you think about outpost? I haven't seen outpost. That's one of the ones that's on the list to get to eventually though. Roger. Yeah. That's the Jake Tapper book that got made into a movie, right? I, I don't know who it. I don't I know think, who wrote think, the book, but it, yeah, it's it's out. It was on I think it was on Netflix is when I yeah, watched it. Jake Jake Tapper wrote that book. I think he researched and, and wrote it, and then they made it into a movie. Kevin, what about you? Any picks? Um, Bridge too far that we haven't hit on. Bridge too far. Yes, it's absolute great classic, movie. One of the best war movies ever made, and it's not a happy ending by any means, but it's a fantastic historical piece of filmmaking and i love it to bits with a superstar cast oh i mean my god like every star in the world is in that movie um and you also i've seen that movie once and it was probably 10 or 15 if not 20 years ago but that movie had a huge impact on my life because they took a still picture of it of robert redford in that movie uh running across a bridge with his you know world war ii era you know gi joe helmet on and a rifle in his hand and they put that on the back of a book called War Stories, which as a kid I read, and I just stared at that picture all the time. I didn't even know it was Robert Redford. I just thought it was a soldier, and I was like, man, that looks cool. 
I, I don't know what exactly I thought it was cool about wearing this big K-Pak helmet with a heavy wooden rifle or whatever, but whatever I, I did. And uh, that had a big impact on me, just that visual. Um, okay. Kevin, right to bear. What's going on there? What's the latest and greatest and tell everybody that doesn't already know what it is. So uh, right to bear is a group of guys who we get together now that it's summer and it's hot as hell and our range is outdoors. We're only doing it a couple of times a month, but uh, we teach concealed carry to uh, mainly individuals who, you know, come from either minority or uh, underprivileged communities that wouldn't ordinarily be serviced by uh, your typical parts of gun culture. So, you know, there's a stereotype that gun culture is mainly, you know, white rednecks going off in the woods to shoot deer, whatever, or psychotic people holding up in bunkers with, you know, 10,000 rounds of ammunition, which I would love to have. But, uh, so partly true. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, the way ammo is, I'm lucky to get 10 rounds of five, five, six, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, anyway, we teach concealed carry, we teach, uh, responsible ownership stuff like that to, you know, people coming mainly from the inner city who they didn't grow up in this culture. They didn't have a chance to imbibe it in their youth. And now they're getting older and realizing that their personal security is their responsibility and they're wanting to do it. They're wanting to do it responsibly. They're wanting to do it legally. And we're providing that service for them. What was the, I I can't remember if I asked you this last time you were on, what was the motivation to start Right to Bear. Where did you come up with this idea? How did that all happen? So I didn't come up with it. It was a friend of mine who, uh, <clears throat> he took a concealed carry class, uh, course for himself. And, you know, he just, he got a passion for teaching other people this information because it was stuff that, you know, would have been immensely valuable to him and his family growing up. He didn't get to it until later in life. He wanted to pass that down to other people who grew up in underprivileged situations. Got you. Got you. Got you. Okay. And how do people, um, how are you guys finding people? How are people coming to you? Is it mostly through the website? Is it word of mouth? Is it like, how, how do they even know to look you guys up? Uh, word of mouth. We have a Facebook page. We have a website. Um, social media has been a huge boon for us because that's how people talk these days. Yeah. Yeah. So are you finding that it's mostly people from around your area that are hitting you up? Or are you getting people traveling from across the country to seek you guys out? Uh, it's definitely more of a local thing. Like we've had some people come from, you know, we're in North Carolina. We've had people come from Virginia, South Carolina. It's, it's not that far of a drive, sure. strictly speaking. Sure. But there's a fairly high demand for learning, you know, how to shoot, uh, getting concealed carry stuff from people who come from the same community as yeah. they do. Yeah. Yeah. I could see it. Is there, is there a, I, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this without it sounding super um, ideological, but is, is there kind of a, there has to be a political bent to this, doesn't there? That like, Hey, we're trying to get people uh, to understand the value of the second amendment who might otherwise be getting told there is no value to it. Am I overstating it or is there a little bit of that? So fun fact, there's a very narrow uh, part of the American political spectrum that views the Second Amendment as a bad thing. The anti-gun side has an outsized influence, an outsized voice. But once you get past your typical 
modern liberal start going further left. They want their guns. The right wants their guns. Everybody wants their guns. So we have people from all sides of the political spectrum who view the Second Amendment as a good thing. And they might not agree on anything else, but we can agree that the more people who have guns know how to use them responsibly, the better. Do you guys help with licensing, uh, like directing people how to get licensed if they do live in a city where there's stricter gun control measures or they have to be careful which firearms they own end up owning? It's not really a problem in North Carolina. That is I mean, true. That let's is be true. honest. It's, it's you know, we have, we've had a blue governor for the last couple of terms, but most of the state's fairly conservative. So at least when it comes to gun ownership, it's more about responsibly carrying day to day than navigating the complex web of regulations that might be in a place like, say, California or New York. Yeah. New yeah. York. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Okay. Cool. Sounds good. Um, we'll obviously have links to it in the show notes for everybody to check out. And speaking of things to plug and check out in the show notes, Charlie, what's the latest now on Aaron Kirk's The Hill? Hey, super excited about Aaron, Aaron Kirk's book, The Hill. And we're talking about pop culture and influencers. I'm pretty sure that the way Matterhorn uh, helped uh, summarize experiences of Vietnam and motivate another another generation of Marines, uh, Carl Melantes' book, uh, Matterhorn. And then we got the new one for this new batch of Marines in The Hill. And I think there's a lot that a lot of people, regardless of what branch of service they're in, or even if they've even been in the military, be able to relate to in Aaron's book. And I, th- I think we need to get him on the show. Uh, I talk to him pretty regularly, Chris. He's he's a fascinating guy. A lot of great experiences in and out of uniform. That book's out. It's on Amazon, The Hill by Aaron Kirk. We've also got Armor of God by Matt Sacra, who is one of my colleagues here at West Point. His book's coming out soon. Uh, working on that as well. And that's his experiences dealing with being an armor officer in Iraq and then dealing with what came after when he came home. No spoilers on that one either, but I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that book as well. So that's what we've got going on. And Chris, I know you you always uh, ask people what they've got to plug, but you got something coming up here pretty soon too, don't you? You want to talk about yeah, it? Yeah, I don't know if we could talk about it yet. I think I got to right. keep my ammo dry for at least one more week, but then yeah, we'll We'll, we'll talk about it, um, I think, then. Uh, Armor of God, when does that launch? When, so when it's, it's still being out? edited. We don't have a, a okay. publication date yet. But okay. Mac's gonna, Matt's going to retire from the Army here, I think, in September. And I told him I'd have it in his hands before then. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, well, I've, I've pre-ordered Aaron Kirk's The Hill. Um, so I encourage everybody else to do so as well. Maybe you will be so motivated by Marine's experience that you will end up joining the Army National Guard as an artilleryman. <laughs> Who knows? There's no telling the second order effects of, <laughs> of a Marine's experience. All right. Listen, Kevin, Charlie, thank you guys. Thanks a million for being here. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Hey, to be thanks, here. Chris. Look forward to doing it again. Kev, good, good talking to you, brother. Indeed. To everyone else, if you are not already subscribed, please subscribe. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review would be awesome. We would love to have it. And we don't really care what you say in the review. Give us all the feedback you want. Good feedback, bad feedback, we'll take it all. But if you could attach it to the five stars for the review, that would really help us out because the metrics do matter. Show notes, they are wherever you're listening to this podcast. So if you're listening to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever, scroll down, you'll see the show notes there. If you want another place to check it out, you can always go to the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com. 
Again, that's the weeklyhavoc.podbean.com or go to Havoc Journal. Look for the article that I wrote that you should should be right there on the homepage because um, I always write an accompanying article for each episode and you can go there and you'll also see the show notes. You'll also see alibis for anything that I misstated, anything I said that might require more context, anything I completely regret and want to do a 180 and take back and change, um, anything like that, as well as our guests, although generally they're pretty good and solid and I'm the only one that needs to cover my ass by writing alibis. But they'll all be there at theweeklyhavoc.podbeam.com or wherever you're listening to this podcast. As always, thanks a million to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Kevin Wilson and Charlie Faint. And we'll see you next time for The Weekly Havoc. So you guys were sitting here just wondering why I'm like just chilling and not getting on with the episode. We're just sitting here wasting time. No, I'm having a good time. <laughs> Char- Charlie, you're just like, yeah, well, we'll let this ride. <laughs> yeah, let's see how. I've got cider. I'm good for the duration. Really? Okay, sweet. <laughs>